we come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. This morning, God willing, we'll be looking together at verses 14 through 23. I want to begin this morning by reading uh, from the beginning of the chapter, if that's okay, because it's, it's so critical for the sake of context. We're going to begin in verse 1, but again, our focus will be verses 14 and following this morning. This is God's word. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold... Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Amen. There's a lot here that we have questions about, probably. I know I do. 
And so we just pause before we go any further just for a brief prayer to ask God by his spirit to please help us understand his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as the giver of your word and the giver of all good gifts. You've given your son, your only beloved son to us, and you've given your own Holy Spirit to be here with us. And so we pray that now even the Holy Spirit of God would be pleased to grant clarity to this portion of your word, that we would understand, that we would understand what you want us to know about Jesus, not only with our heads, but with our hearts. And that as we go from our, this place today, our faith, our faith might be increased. To your honor and glory we ask. Amen. There is a lot in this passage, verses 14 through 23, that is perplexing to us. It's quite a scene. We have a, a demon-possessed boy. We have a desperate father. We have, we have a crowd. We have disciples who Jesus had commissioned to go out and to heal and to cast out demons in his name, and they can't heal this little boy. And then Jesus has this language about if you have faith the size of a mustard seed and you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will, and we're wondering, what does that mean? I've never seen a mountain cast into the sea, and what do I do with this? What are we to make of this? Well, I want to entitle this message, Keep Your Eyes on the King. That's a little change from the, the bulletin uh, title. I often work on those titles earlier in the week, and sometimes as I come to Sunday morning, there's a little bit more clarity. And I want us, as we go through the passage this morning, to keep our eyes on the king. That is the point. That is the point of this text, and of really all of God's word. That we would fix the eyes of our heart, as it were, on God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at this passage that we've read this morning in verses 14 through 23, it can really be divided up into two scenes. Of course, it's there, this isn't a movie. This isn't a fictional account. This is true. It's recorded also in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke from uh, the same scene. And this father comes up to Jesus and begs him to heal his son. But it can be divided up into two scenes. The first scene we have, the scene of of this father and this boy interacting with Jesus. And then in the second scene in verse 19 and following, we have Jesus alone with his disciples and they're asking, hey, Jesus, how come we couldn't cast out that demon? So that's how I want to order our thoughts this morning. Let's begin by looking at the first scene together. Well, the transition between the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain at the beginning of chapter 17, now to this scene where this poor demon-possessed boy, it is jarring, it is dramatic, truly, isn't it? From the heights of the mountain to the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus to this wretched, miserable, um, heart-rending scene of this little boy, this young man who is in the control of a cruel, evil spirit. We live in a time when 
Everybody believes in just about everything except maybe evil spirits. We, we somehow can't believe that that you know, could possibly be the case. We are so impressed with, with uh, our, our, what we can see with our eyes and with our medical abilities and so forth that we, we can't even entertain that there is such a thing as Satan, the devil, and demonic spirits. But the Bible teaches very clearly that when this world, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they believed Satan, the serpent in the garden, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and that God in his, in his justice and in his judgment basically gave to Adam and Eve and to mankind what they said they wanted. They didn't want God to be their king. They didn't, we didn't want God to be our ruler. We believed the serpent, the liar, and so ever since, in a sense, Satan has been the God small g of this world. It's not that God has, the true God has somehow vacated his throne. It's not that he somehow is not in control of things overall. But we understand we live in a very dark and evil world. We wholeheartedly disagree with a songwriter and he says, what a wonderful world. Imagine saying that in Ukraine right now in Kiev. We understand there's beautiful places. There are, there are scenes that are peaceful. And God in his grace and his mercy does let us experience a lot of good in this world. Not only in the scenery, but we see kindness in men and women and so forth. But marring all of it, messing it up all the time in our bodies, in our families, in our marriages, in our towns, is, is sin, is evil. You can't escape it. It's why the, it's just, it's just a reality. It's here. And not every illness by any account is, is caused by evil spirits. It's been clear in the Gospel of Matthew that there are various diseases, uh, blindness and, and um, leprosy and other diseases, illnesses, fevers, and so forth, that Jesus and the disciples have healed men and women of. And it wasn't related to a demon possession. The text here is not teaching, for example, that all mental illness is automatically related to demon possession. It's not saying that. But the fact is we live in a world in which Satan, the devil, and his demons are no respecters of persons. And they hate children as much as they hate adults. They don't recognize any rules They hate God and they hate every man, woman, boy, and girl made in the image of God. Our culture is in a war against children right now. As as in our country, in this part of the world, Satan has been so effective to the point where we're, we're, can you imagine growing up in this time when you're a little one? And no longer is your mom or dad or your teacher telling you it's a good thing to be a boy. It's a good thing to be a girl. Imagine the confusion that we enter into these little hearts, these little minds. It's a hellish world. Not just because of war in Ukraine, but, but this is a very difficult world to grow up in as a child. Not only here in the United States, but all around the world. You think of our country again. You just think of, in the name of sexual freedom, what we are just a culture that's so obsessed with self and with sexual immorality that we don't even think about the impact on the little ones. So what? They have to deal with it. 
They have to be exposed to everything. That's just the way it is. It's just, it's evil. It's demonic. And in this instance, sometime at some point, some demon decided to express his hatred towards God by preying on this, this, this young man, this boy. In the Gospel of Mark and Luke, we learn a little more details. He, he, he's not, when the father says uh, he's a lunatic, that, we, we use the word lunatic in a um, demeaning way. That's not what's meant here. Maybe you have a different translation, might translate it differently. The idea here is the father saying, you know, my son is very, very ill. Lunatic coming from this ancient myth that if you looked at the moon for too long, you would be lunar struck, moon struck. They didn't know what was wrong with him. It's not necessarily evident that the father or even the disciples knew that a demon was involved in this case up front. But this, this boy is thrown into the fire. There was a lot of open fires and obviously cooking scenes and so forth. And this, this demon would cast this, this boy into the fire. Can you imagine what this boy looked like? The scars marred. People going by would say, what happened to him? He would be thrown into, uh, thrown down violently, the father says. He foamed at the mouth. He was, he was cruelly oppressed. It's a dark scene. But what might be even more upsetting, more, and to understand the heart of our Lord when he says, you wicked and unbelieving and perverted generation. Think about it. You have this poor boy, this, this poor father, this desperate father, and you have a crowd. And we're so used to this evil world that we don't even notice it. But to, to, to think about it, here is this cruelly oppressed young man, this boy, we don't know his age, how come people aren't praying? There's a crowd of people there. There's no compassion. This, who, who's coming along this side, this desperate father? Shouldn't, shouldn't there be? I mean, this is, these are the Jews. They know God. There's Jewish leaders here among them. In view of the seriousness of this situation, how come there isn't a pause here and to say, let's all gather together and lift up our voices to pray to God, to ask him to work on behalf of this little boy? No, that's not what they want. You know what they're there for? This is where it really gets sick and demented. They're there for a show. They want to see what the disciples can do. Is they going to be able to heal? Are they going to be able to handle it or not? They're there for the show. To see just merely what happens. These crowds by now have been hearing Jesus teach off and on for two and a half years. They have witnessed him heal people. They've witnessed him multiply the bread and the loaves and the fishes. They have seen by now his miraculous power. And yet still they have not come to the point where they in humility are willing to recognize their sin. And to recognize the truth. That he is God's son, the Messiah, the Savior sent to save them. Oh no, they're still, they're still caught up with the show. With the car accident on the side of the road, if you will. Rather than worshiping God, professing faith in Jesus as the Christ. And doing good and ministering to this father and his son. 
We go from the heights of the mountain, the glory of God in the face of Jesus, to the depths of demonic oppression in the span of a few verses. It's dramatic to say the least. This poor boy has done nothing. There's, there's no indication that this boy has done anything wrong. He just was born in this world. The poor father can do nothing. He's probably spent all his money going to doctors, trying to figure out what's going on, probably paid off various, you know, Jewish soothsayers who maybe could concoct some kind of potion to get this demon out of this boy. This father can do nothing. And the disciples, most surprisingly, the disciples, the disciples who at this point in Jesus's name and who were sent by Jesus to heal and to cast out the disciples have not been able to, if you will, handle this case. It's tragic. And there's the crowd. I wonder, we're not told, but among them, maybe some of the Jewish leaders, are they enjoying this? Here are these disciples sent out by Jesus in his name, healing people. And there, here's this boy perhaps being thrown on the ground, foaming at the mouth. The father's pleading with the disciples. The other gospels say he was begging them and they can't do anything. And all the Jewish leaders are probably enjoying every moment of it at this poor boy's expense. Probably some mocking and some laughter among the Jewish leaders and unbelievers. Among others, there's just an indifference, gross curiosity. And this gives rise to Jesus' strong words. After the father comes to him, falling on his knees before Jesus, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. After telling Jesus, verse 16, I brought him to your disciples. They could not cure him. Jesus then says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Now, how do you hear that? Do you you hear Jesus? Do you see Jesus looking in the eyes of this poor father on his knees and saying, you you unbelieving? No, that's not what's going on. Jesus is gone from the glory of the presence of his father. And he's coming back to the reality of the unbelief of the generation he was in. He sees the crowd. I don't even think necessarily he's speaking there of his disciples. For his disciples, he points out their little faith, but he doesn't rebuke them severely. What Jesus is speaking to in verse 17 is the fact that he has been with them two and a half years, teaching them, displaying the power of God. It's evident that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is God's son, the Messiah, that he has all power and dominion, as was prophesied in Daniel, the prophet, hundreds of years earlier. And yet the crowd still doesn't believe that he is the Christ still doesn't believe that he has the power and are still wondering, can he handle this case? And this gives rise in the heart of our Lord. It's a reminder that Jesus is truly man. He's the son of God, the eternal son of God, one with the father dwelling in eternity past. But when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, born he was born a real baby, a real man. He's, he's a real man. And men and women have 
these things called hearts and emotions. And here you see some of the passion and the heartbreak of our master, of our king, in view of this scene of unbelief and the tragedy of this little boy who needs to be helped. And he looks at it all and out of his heart, just overwhelming, he, he expresses the truth of that generation. And he would say it of our generation as well. Oh, this unbelieving and perverted or crooked, twisted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. He was not saying this to this poor father. In, he, was, he was addressing the crowd, the scene. And they brought the boy to him. And you see there, oh, and he worked for a long time on this hard case. He really struggled. It was, it was really tough for Jesus. He he, he really just spent some time. No, you, you don't hear anything about it. I mean, don't miss it. Don't miss it. This, this demon that has been able to possess this boy all these years, be so cruel to him that no one else could, could get rid of, Jesus just tells him, get lost. And the demon, we learn the other gospel, throws the boys on the boy on the ground as like one last defiance. But that demon doesn't argue, doesn't have a conversation, doesn't stick around. The demon is gone. Why? Listen, this is what you have to understand. Remember, keep your eyes on the king. Do you remember what we learned about the king on the mountain in Transfiguration? Full of glory, one with the Father, the beloved Son. Your king is king over the darkness king over the darkness. In other words, he rules over the darkness. Rules over the darkness. That means he has command over the darkness. Authority over the darkness. With a word, the demon is gone. No discussion, no argument, no pleading, no wrestling, no difficulty, because he is the king of demons. Not in the sense that they are his and belong, but in other words, he rules over them and he is the king of angels, king of men and women, king over all. An amazing scene. This boy who all his life has been, the other gospels say, deaf and mute. Uh, you think about a, a parents that, you know, we know some dear friends who, who their children are... Um, handicapped in one way or the other. And, and one of the difficulties of, of a child who cannot speak is, is they can be in pain and the parents can't really discern what it is the child is trying to say or communicate. It's heartrending. And just imagine this scene, this father who's on his face before Jesus, begging him to heal his son. And Jesus says, bring him to me, gives a command, boom. And for the first time, this boy is in his right mind. His eyes are open. He looks at his papa, his father. With all his scars and everything, he can speak. He can hear. This is our Jesus. This is our King. As we move to, I just want to emphasize again, you, you see where I got that from at the end of verse 18. The boy was cured at once. That's our king. King of the, over the darkness.
As we move to the next scene, Jesus is with his disciples a little bit after this event, and the disciples came to Jesus privately. In another gospel, we learn it was in a house, and they, they, they have a question. They, Peter, James, and John apparently weren't there. They were up on the mountain with Jesus, so the other disciples were involved, and they, had, they were confused. They had been able to, in the name of Jesus, to cast out other demons, and so they ask him in verse 19, why could we not drive it out? And he, Jesus said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Littleness of your faith. For I truly, I say to you, if you have the faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, you can make a lot out of this verse. And actually, there's a lot in this verse that has the potential to take your eyes off the king. <laughs> It's amazing how this verse is misunderstood or even abused, and and we go from looking at the king to looking at faith, as though faith itself is some kind of some power. Faith itself is some kind of deity. If only if only you can you know faith and get more faith. Never mind Jesus, but faith. You know your faith. Oh no, this is this isn't getting our eyes off the king here. What what happened? What does Jesus mean when he says? For your faith is little. He doesn't say they have no faith. They have faith. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. We're still remembering in chapter 16 the recent confession of Peter on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. They haven't abandoned that confession. But apparently, as they have gone out ministering in the name of Jesus, healing and casting out demons as, as maybe the popularity of Jesus is going down, as maybe the kingdom is not unfolding exactly like they thought. He's telling, Jesus is telling them that he's going to die. And, and they're wondering maybe a little bit, uh, is he really the king? Uh, they still believe he is, but, but here's, here's the issue. When they saw this demon-possessed boy, They apparently were more impressed with that situation at hand than they were with the king that they were following. And so why were they not able to heal this boy? Listen, very important to understand. Jesus, rather God and Christ, will do nothing in and among his people that does not honor and recognize and glorify him. He doesn't participate with anything false. He only works with the truth. And the truth is he is a great and glorious God. He is a great and glorious savior, Jesus is. And the disciples were waning maybe a little bit. And and they actually, we learn uh, that the disciples not far after this time began asking who was who is the greatest in the kingdom look at chapter 18 verse 1 at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said who then is the greatest in the kingdom in other words as they it's possible that as they were going about healing in Jesus's name they were start to become a little impressed with themselves 
And we don't know, but maybe you can imagine something like the father brings this, this boy to these disciples, and by now they've been healing all kinds of people in Jesus' name. And, and so they, they maybe have come to the place where they're a little self-assured, and sure, we can handle this, and, and come to find out they're not able to heal the boy. God will do nothing. He will not work among his people in any other way except that which exalts the truth concerning his son. And the disciples were not overly impressed, apparently at this point, with Jesus. And so God did not work through them. Faith uniquely honors God because it recognizes that we can do nothing in and of ourselves and that the power belongs to God and God alone. Jesus says in verse 20, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, it, it seems like he's speaking uh, a little bit contrary to what he just said. He just rebuked the disciples for the littleness of their faith. And then he says, well, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which apparently is very, very, very small. But his point is, not to direct the disciples to the nature of their faith at the end of the day, but what is their faith in? Verse 20, again, some have abused this to make this a name it, claim it verse. I I claim that mountain and I want that mountain. You You can say that all you want to Mount Washington. I want you to be thrown into the Gulf of Maine. I don't think it's gonna happen. You're saying, wait a minute, pastor. Jesus says it will. Okay, here. It's never recorded in the Bible, in the New Testament, or in 2,000 years of church history that anybody ever said to any hill or mountain, literally, to be lifted up and cast into the sea. It's not happened, okay? Are we agreed on that? So what is Jesus saying? It's very interesting. You have a little bit of an Old Testament background here in the book of Isaiah. Maybe you remember in the, in the Handel's Messiah, let every valley, every mountain be lifted up and made low preparing the way for the Lord. It's possible that Jesus here is reminding the disciples, the apostles of their unique mission is to proclaim Christ and that as they trust in Christ and in his mission, that they should have confidence that as they trust in Christ, as they rely upon God, that there is nothing that will come to them that will be in their way if only they trust God and it will move. Jesus is not saying, you do whatever you want. You come up with anything you want and you name it and you claim it. What he is saying is to the disciples and to us that whatever he calls us to, to serve him and to honor him, that there is nothing that we come up against that if only we will in humility seek the face of God, trust him, that God cannot overcome. There is no case that's too difficult. Illustration, this demon-possessed boy. I was rebuked as I uh, thought of this verse the past few days. Uh, here recently, the you know, church, we're, we're getting some you know, quotes. And this building's not finished yet. We still have quotes coming in on things like HVAC. And, and uh, the quotes right now are more than double than what we had a reasonable 
uh, belief that they would be when we first bought this building. And, and the numbers are big, and I, I don't know how. And I, I, in my heart, I've, I've, tended to, I've been um, intimidated by that. And I just thought, how stupid is that? How st- and shame on me, this is in confession time, I didn't mean to make it that, but you know, I don't know if some of you saw, n- no offense to the previous owners of this building, but how awful that ugly carpet was. I mean, the carpet was here, it was just old. It was just old and dirty and filthy and torn. And at that time, we didn't think we'd be able to replace it because we didn't have the money. And we didn't know that God would raise up a company that would refinish these floors for us polish the concrete, which would be around $35,000, $40,000 value, and give it to us. And I'm worried about the HVAC. Shame on me. I, I can't name it and claim it. I don't know. What I do know, for example, maybe this is an illustration, I know that according to God's word, it is pleasing to God that we meet, that we honor him, that we worship him, that we proclaim his gospel. I believe according to his word, it is pleasing that our church continue to fellowship and we need a place to meet. We need, you know, we, we want to share this good news with others. And so we don't want to be tucked away in some basement of a big brick building in, in a portion of Concord. We want to be somewhere where people can come in and know we're here and we certainly are now and It's wonderful. So I don't know how all those things are going to be dealt with. But as we pray and seek God, will he not provide? That's just one example. There's much more serious examples of needs of change in our own lives or our families as we minister the word of God to others. The point here, Jesus ultimately is not telling the disciples you need to think about your faith. Because faith itself, what is it meant to do? It is meant to fix the eyes of the heart on God. On God. The way to increase our faith, listen to this. This is so important. The way to increase our faith is not to look at our faith, but to look at our king. To keep our eyes on the king. You know, I I don't know, the text doesn't say, but Peter, James, and John had just seen Jesus glowing, (laughs) you know, with the glory of God. His face shone like the sun, Matthew 17 says. His robes were white as, as, as light, and, and they had seen this, the reality of who Jesus is. And I don't know, but as J- Peter, James, and John came down the mountain, came to this situation, saw this boy, I don't know, but those three disciples who had just seen the glory of Christ, it could be that in their hearts they're thinking, this is no problem. <laughs> what I just saw, no, no issue here. Um, this father, you're, you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> we just saw him glowing with the glory of God. And that's why we need to keep our eyes on our king. How good he is and how great he is and the greatness of God. He can handle it. And that is the way to increase our faith. Keep our eyes on the king. There's a line here in verse 21 about Jesus says this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Some of you have a brackets or a little note there. Um, some of these words are not in some of the earliest copies of the manuscripts. Um, but we know elsewhere that prayer, of course, is what God is used. And elsewhere in the New Testament, fasting is on occasion recommended. But think of it this way. 
It, it's not a, we'll pray and we'll fast and boom, it'll happen. What, what, after all, is prayer and fasting but an exercise of faith? Prayer is setting aside other things and directing our minds and our hearts on the living God. And fasting on occasion is just a way of of breaking with our normal routine and saying like this father, oh God, I'm desperate. I need you to act. These are just aids to faith. That's all prayer and fasting is. They're not magic routines. They're not They're not automatic, you do this and God will do this. These are aids to tools of expressions of God-honoring faith. And Jesus reminds his disciples in verses 22 and 23, again, that he is the Son of Man, that is this term for the glorious prophesied Messiah, and he's going to be delivered, he will be killed, and he will be raised on the third day. Isn't it jarring or isn't it, isn't it uh, remarkable for us as we read? After hearing that Jesus would be raised on the third day, we hear that they were deeply grieved. <laughs> what? He's saying he's going to die, but he'll, be, he'll, he'll rise from the dead on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. What was going on there? They could see with their eyes Jesus becoming king right then and answering all their problems. They couldn't see God's plan of having his son die for our sins and being raised on the third day. They couldn't see it. They didn't have that faith. And we are so often like that, aren't we? We are, make no mistake, challenged here in regard to our faith. We are to allow our hearts to be rebuked this morning for the littleness of our faith. But I want to remind you again that the, the, the intent of the Holy Scriptures is not here to have you fixated on your faith, but to fixate your heart and your mind on Jesus Christ. And I want to leave you this morning with, as we come to the Lord's Supper, with one last reflection on our Lord. In this whole scene, we learn much about Jesus. But one thing I want to leave you with is his compassion and his long-suffering. Isn't it remarkable? He's, I mean, this, three of the disciples have just heard God the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved son. He's come down the mountain. He's been sharing, uh, he's been demonstrating his power for two and a half years. This father coming, begging Jesus. Jesus does not turn him away. Jesus has compassion for this little boy, compassion for this father, heals him, places his hand on him. What a savior we have. And even with how he interacts with the disciples, rather than saying, oh, you guys are such bozos. I told you what to do. I'm fed up with you. I'm getting a new group. He doesn't. His disciples say, why couldn't we heal him? And Jesus patiently explains. And this morning, I am so glad, I'm sure with you, that not only is Jesus king over the darkness, but Jesus is king over men and women of little faith like me and maybe like some of you. Such a gracious Lord is our Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your Son, and Jesus, thank you for your patience with us. 
Forgive us for how often we get our eyes off of you. We pray now in these next moments as we come to the Lord's table that you would fix our hearts on Jesus again and of your covenant love for your people. In Christ's name, amen.